Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, May the 20th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, Memorial Day, May the 30th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 109th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. We want to wish all of the families that have lost servicemen and women in the history of their families in war, a reflective Memorial Day. And we wanted to reiterate one of our commitments on this show is to avoid unjust wars, unjust interventions. So with that in mind, we wish to move on with our show tonight. Enjoy. Welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. Today is Friday, May the 20th, 2022. This show will be pre-recorded and replayed on Memorial Day, Monday, May the 30th, 2022. We will be visiting with the distinguished editor of Covert Action Magazine. That would be Jeremy Kuzmarov. And Jeremy, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thanks for having me again. Jeremy Kuzmarov is the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. He's also the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. And the most recent publication of his books, I believe, was 2018. But he writes a number of articles and well-vetted articles, I might add, for the Covert Action magazine. I had an introduction I wanted to frame our discussion with, Jeremy, so please bear with me for a second. When you study the history of U.S. foreign policy, a disturbing feature, which is completely absent from the mainstream media coverage of U.S. foreign policy, is its complicity with some of the worst human rights violators in history. And it seems to be a cynical and unprovable statement, but in fact, it is not. I can remember in report regularly on this show from year to year about the notorious death squads in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras uh, during the 1960s through the 1990s. It included thousands of disappearances and documented torturing and dismemberments of anyone who opposed the repression of our U.S.-supported governments in those countries. Dozens of clergy, those doing no more than serving the poor, like Archbishop Bosco Romero, followed by the infamous raping and murdering of our four U.S. nuns in December of 1980 occurred. And those are just indications of the tip of the iceberg, if you will. The U.N.-sanctioned 
investigations that followed U.S. interventions in Guatemala and El Salvador found that in El Salvador of the 75,000 or so deaths and of the 200,000 plus deaths in Guatemala, over 90% of those deaths were directly attributable to the military governments that we supported. We supported oligarchs and the status quo of unlivable poverty it exuded in our media too often dutifully accepted the false labeling of all opposition as quote-unquote communists in order to hide the truth of the naked profiteering that we were promoting and enabling as the driving force behind these U.S. foreign policy initiatives. This outright repression, torture, and disappearances by death squads and paramilitary groups were overseen by graduates of our very own School of the Americas, and this was the status quo. At the same time, in the 1980s, thousands of miles away, we were supporting and nurturing another large group of the most inhumane elements the world has to offer, the Mujahideen, which became the Al-Qaeda elements led by Osama bin Laden that we employed and armed to fight and to bleed Russia in Afghanistan. The same folks that would be responsible for the loss of thousands of Americans on 9-11 and that since 2011 to date continue to be U.S. foreign policy allies in Syria, despite our claims that there was a moderate military opposition, which there never was. It was these folks that were the tip of the spear of the foreign policy forces that were fighting the Assad government. At the same time, the LIFG, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, another al-Qaeda embedded group in the Northeast and the Benghazi area in Libya, were our main allies in the theater of creating the appearance that Gaddafi was repressing his own people in Libya. A false image perpetuated by our U.S. foreign policy and unquestionably endorsed by our major medias that is belied by the fact that at the time, the very same time, Libya had the highest human development index in the whole continent of Africa. And today, it's the neo-Nazi riddled government, the one that came to power post-coup 2014. A coup that overthrew a democratically elected government, a coup in which we were the primary motivators of. And these neo-Nazis are not just in the government itself, in the cabinet positions, half dozen or more very high cabinet positions following the coup, but also in the army and the security services of the Ukraine. We've documented that on many shows. Last week, I thought Scott Ritter did a very good job of showing that neo-Nazi history from World War II right up to the U.S. alliance with the existing government that we have now in the Ukraine. But think about it. The character of a person is revealed by the character of their friends and their allies. It's a real truism and something that we should not run away from, but acknowledge and try to be accountable to. So when we think about Dr. King's words that the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, and that this violence is kept from the American public by our media and by the lies our government constantly has told us over the decades regarding our interventions. This additional dimension is particularly disturbing, that our allies have consistently been the most violent and inhumane elements of humanity, the Mujahideen, the death squads in El Salvador, 
Guatemala, and throughout Central America. The Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-like armies that have formed the backbone of the fighting force for U.S. foreign policy interests against Assad in Syria for the last decade. The neo-Nazis now in Ukraine and in the Contras in Nicaragua that Ronald Reagan in our media described as freedom fighters. Despite their long, very well-documented history of killing and attacking civilians and, and other unarmed Nicaraguans, good American taxpayers have failed to realize these realities, and until we do, they will continue. But all of this is kept from the United States public, and the presentation of the Ukraine-Russian-NATO conflict is also presented to the United States public in the most pejorative way, and this demonizing of Russia has been an ongoing feature way before the present Ukraine-Russia military conflict that is occurring as we speak. In 2008, I can remember we were told that Russia unprovokingly invaded Georgia. We questioned that because the evidence was not there. And later, it was discovered by the EU investigation a year and a half later that, in fact, Georgia had initiated it. They were launching indiscriminate bombings into South Ossetia that killed dozens of people and hit civilian targets and Russian peacekeepers, and that Russia responded in kind. Also, the Russian bounty story. I remember the reports of Russian bounties being paid for killing U.S. troops in Afghanistan quickly became a major feature of the anti-Russia mantra. Uh, The intelligence assessment was first reported back in June of 2020 by the New York Times and was cited by Biden at the time on the presidential campaign, accusing then-President Trump of not standing up to Russia. The reports themselves were based not on on incontrovertible evidence, but on anonymous information provided by U.S. intelligence services. And in fact, later, the White House acknowledged that there was very little evidence that Russia had offered Taliban militants bounties to kill U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, but the damage had been done. And I guess the same can be said for this recent Buka incident that occurred during the 1st of April of this year in which everyone condemned Russia for these massacres without any second thought of presenting evidence to support those deals. And so, Jeremy, a couple of things I wanted to ask you to bring light to today, because one of them is, and we'll get to the Buka deal in a minute or two, but first, I wanted to indicate that this is May of 2022. This is the anniversary month of the horrific massacre that occurred and burning to death of some four dozen unarmed civilians in Odessa, May 2nd. At the hands of these far-right neo-Nazi groups in the Ukraine, our allies, which occurred following the coup that sent shockwaves throughout all of Ukraine, particularly the East, about what this new government was all about. Can you highlight a little bit about that event? You you recently wrote an article um, that I thought did a really good job of, it actually interviewed a Odessa survivor and such. Can you give us the highlights of what the American public should know about the Odessa massacre of May 2nd, 2014? Sure. Well, thanks. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think the backdrop was the coup of 2014 that, you know, the U.S. played a central role in helping to orchestrate as part of this uh, attempt to pry Ukraine into the Western orbit. 
And, you know, the U.S., in support of the Maidan, so-called Maidan revolution, overthrew the pro-Russian government of Viktor Yanukovych, which had been popularly elected. And from my understanding, the protesters, there was supposed to be an election the next year, and the protesters didn't have enough uh, signature for an impeachment. And they resorted to a violent tactic, and there were snipers who shot at people, and they kind of framed Yanukovych's security forces when it was found out that they were Georgian legionnaires, and it was part of a kind of black flag operation to paint the Yanukovych government in a negative light and, and you know give validity to the protesters. So this is a kind of backdrop for the Odessa. I mean, the Yanukovych government was forced to flee. A new government was set in place. And they're basically carrying out pogroms against pro-Russian elements and, and leftists in the country. And Odessa became a center of these pogroms. And, you know, the, the coalition that overthrew Yanukovych included many far-right ultra-nationalist elements. Many were worshippers of Stepan Bandera, who was a <coughs> Nazi collaborator in World War II. So these Nazi forces descended on Odessa and they burned down a trade union building where some of the, I mean, there had been a lot of protests after the coup. There were protests against the new government in Odessa and Mariupol. And the new government you know, employed violence against those protesters. And this culminated in that burning of the trade union building in Odessa with at least 48 killed, but maybe more. And the building would burn to the ground. And it was yeah, a horrific uh, massacre that I was you know barely reported on in U.S. media. Maybe it was very briefly. Yeah, it's never remembered or invoked. And you know, some commentators just dismiss the claim that there are Nazi forces operating in Ukraine. But you know, these are the kind of forces that that perpetrated this horrific crime. In your article, you interview a guy that was named Alexei, I believe who currently lives in Luhansk in the eastern Ukraine area. And apparently it's not just him saying, I mean, I, I've been online and you can, there's a lot of video evidence of exactly what occurred, right? And so apparently the post-coup police force stood by, the firefighters stood by. Uh, these people were basically were terrified by these far-right militia type people they took refuge in this in this trade union and, and then it got set on fire right i mean that was like and these people are jumping from windows when they land if they survived the fall which many of them did one uh, apparently was beaten to death um according to the witness there by these nazi guys with the metal bar the actual environment that followed was you know you weren't even allowed to to pay homage to the dead and, and the fact that some of these people got shot, jumping out, gunshots were heard, and none of these people were armed. These were all peaceful, peaceful. It was just a horrific type of thing. And in a sense, what is being alleged is that this was kind of a planned type of event in order to send very clear messaging to anyone that was going to oppose the new existing illegitimate government of the post-coup period. And on top of that, to this day, eight years later, no one has been prosecuted. Is that a fair summary of the, the nature of, of this massacre? 
I think so. Yeah, that's a very good summary. Yeah, and a lot of them were beaten outside the building after they escaped the fire by these thugs. And the mother of one of the victims lost her teaching post at the university. I mean, there was a climate of persecution that really developed. And I, th- I think this is unknown in the United States, that this was really a repressive government that came in place after the 2014 coup. And they were massacring people. They were firing people who didn't have the right you know, political leanings, trying to basically enforce their rule. Yeah, as you say, yeah, this may have been a symbolic or theatrical event to show who's in power and what they're going to do to anybody who rose up. And this is continuing. You know, the Zelensky government had banned 11 opposition parties. They're running these intelligence operations where they're kidnapping people who are part of these left-wing parties that are banned, or politicians or civilians who are sympathetic to Russia, or you know, mayors who want to promote diplomacy with, with yeah. the Russians. And then the conflicts are among those being kidnapped and sent to torture gulag, and some have been executed without any trial. And there are Ukrainian officials bragging on social media about how they killed these traitors. So, I mean, this is incredibly violent and repressive government. And it you know, fits the pattern of past uh, you know, U.S. military and covert intervention where they're supporting extremely regressive right-wing or repressive forces like in El Salvador or Vietnam that are engaged in pogroms or uh, these mass roundup campaign and torture. So, I mean, to claim that Ukraine is a democracy fighting Russian invaders simply not a functioning democracy there. It's a highly repressive government. And, you know, there was an article in the New York Times today about how the Senate passed this $40 billion aid package and there was no debate, no dissent, no debate. And that's really sad here uh, in the United States that nobody's raising a cry about how the U.S. government, uh, at a time when there are major crises within the United States, the impoverishment of the public sector, you know, the education system, and they're sending $40 billion to this repressive government has committed horrendous uh, atrocities over the years. And there's not one voice of dissent or not even a debate about spending $40 billion on that. Well, let me just remind folks that we are visiting with the editor of the Covert Action magazine. That would be Jeremy Kosmarov. I wanted to have you talk to a few other important elements that are underreported or really not reported at all in our mainstream press and are shaping the perspective that Americans have that when, when Americans know what the real story is, they make the right choices, right? And I think that that's the big problem in our country is the control of information and such. But you mentioned Mariupol and this was one of the, the main cities in which the Azov Battalion, the far right-wing neo-Nazi tattooed up individuals and et cetera, really have their teeth sunk in, into the city. The perspective that we get is that the city has been completely leveled out of the, just the meanness of a Russian invasion rather than one of the elements of the claims that the Russians made that supported the special operation is what they call it, was this importance of denazification, of going after these Nazi-ridden battalions. Is it correct to say that Mariupol is where they had their largest neo-Nazi contingent and and were entrenched the most? And, and how did that play into the result of the pictures that we're seeing of Mariupol being so devastatingly leveled in many ways? 
Well, yeah, and first I would say that one thing I find odd is that all the footage we're getting, like even the mainstream media, almost all of it, every time I watch, uh, it says a courtesy of the Azov Battalion. And even in Buka, near Kiev, when the Russian withdrew, the Azov Battalion came in, you know, a question about the Buka atrocities. So it seems, I mean, I'm not living in Ukraine, but the impression I'm getting is that the Azov Battalion is much bigger than, you know, than even I thought. There are people who are more critical of the U.S. role in Ukraine thought because it seems to be everywhere and almost a dominating force within the Ukrainian army. And I think, yeah, that's certainly in the case in places like Odessa and, and Mariupol were known to be strongholds of the Azov Battalion on the far right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that article, and the, the person who was interviewed um, it was part of a seminar uh, run by an anti-war group based on New York that was founded by uh, Ramsey Clark, former attorney general. He discussed what had happened after the, you know, and this is kind of an unknown history here, as it was never reported on, is that you know there were these uprisings after that coup of 2014. There were uprisings in numerous cities, including Mariupol, and they were crushed uh, by the state security forces mm-hmm. of the new government taking root, which was uh, Petro Poroshenko was the ultimate leader, and that government was heavily you know supported and subsidized by the United States. So that's kind of backdrop. Uh, the people had rebelled already. And, you know, these right-wing forces were at the forefront and suppressing them. And then, you know, we've seen how that was a central, you know, been a central battle in the new war. And fortunately, the city had come to look like Stalingrad in the right. 40s. And if, if I uh, can interrupt you for just a second, because I think this is really important, what you're saying, is that Mary Pole was one of the hotbeds of demonstrations and such, and they rolled the tanks, the Ukrainian tanks, and there's pictures of the repression that followed and such. But what people I don't think really appreciate is that in Mariupol and most of Eastern Ukraine, the overwhelming majority, I'm talking 75, 80%, and we've mentioned this before, but the Robert Schuman did the polling and it's been validated by others, but over 70 to 80% of the people in those regions of Eastern Ukraine voted in the 2010 election for Yanukovych, the guy that got cooed out. So if you can imagine yourself supporting a president in the United States and you have 80% of your neighbors and your fellow citizens that had voted for this guy, the egregious acts that resulted, as you mentioned with the snipers and everything else that resulted in this clearly a U.S. bat coup gave them real cause in order to protest. But peaceful protests were met with this incredible repression, which brings us back to how you were describing this Maripol situation. So this was an area in which they attacked very early, right? That was in May of following. This is about the same time as the Odessa deal, right? About the same same month, right? Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah. And what he said was that, um, you know, the resistance was more effective in the Donbass region, where the people ultimately voted to secede with a huge percentage of the population f- uh, supporting that vote. And then they carried out armed resistance when the Ukrainian military went in there. So the resistance wasn't as effective. It was crushed. Yeah, it was a peaceful. These were peaceful protests in, in Mariupol and then Odessa. And these right-wing forces, loyal to the new government, crushed them violently. 
you know, there were numbers killed in Mariupol at that time. So, I mean, that's a backdrop. And that's uh, really, excuse me again, but really important. But this is what shaped the response in the Donbass, right? They saw what happened in Odessa. They saw what happened in Mariupol. They saw this incredible repression and they said, look, we're not going to be victims in the same form or fashion. And this is what instigated the actual armed uprising. Again, 80% of the people voted for this president. We make it out in our media to say, you know, Russia instigated and stirred all this up when really a rational mind can make a very clear argument that seems to have great justification that the priority, the primary motivation for the uprisings in the East uh, had to do with uh, 80% of the people. Having the president that they voted for removed by a coup. And these are mainly Russian speakers, right? And so these are the people that it, it is now a crime, right? Under like you were indicating the repression that came with the coup government, that it's, it's a crime to say kind things or suggest that Russia's not at fault. You're putting your, you know, you're literally putting your life at risk to express that kind of political opinion, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeremy, before you fully respond, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We'll be right back with our special guest, Jeremy Kosmarov, right after this. Don't touch that dial.